Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. And it is an honor to announce that our program is now part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And today's episode is very much in line with our affiliation with the Democracy Group. What you'll be hearing is actually from another podcast that's part of the network, Village Squarecast. For just a little behind the scenes, I'm actually on the team with the good folks at Village Squarecast, Liz Joyner and Vanessa Rouse, who you might remember from when they were on TPNR, this show. Well, over the last few months, I've been able to pitch in by producing their program as well as occasionally hosting their show. So you'll be hearing me introduce uh, this just incredible talk. And at the end, I chime in again to close out the episode. It's just been a real treat being involved with just such a great organization and all the important, timely work they've been doing at Village Square. You'll be hearing more from me and then from Liz about the incredible testimony from Daryl Davis, who is a brilliant musician who's traveled all over this country and the world, uh, and how he's confronted hate and prejudice very much in line with a lot of what we've been talking about and talk politics and religion without killing each other. So I don't want to be too redundant about all of that here, but I can assure you that this really is an inspiring story, one I'm sure you'll appreciate. But before I hand it over to Village Square, just remember, subscribe if you haven't already, tell a friend, give us a good rating and leave a review. You know, and let me just emphasize that point. If you haven't already, write a review, like go to Apple Podcast or Pocket Cast or Podcast Addict or wherever you get your podcast, see if there's a way to like write a review. It really does make a difference. Hopefully you'll have a good review and it'll be five stars and all that good stuff. Um, but it, it really does make a difference in how we're found on all of the different apps. And we get great, you know, uh, improved scores on listen notes and the ways that they, they all rate us and stuff. So easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. That's politicsandreligion.us, or feel free to connect with me directly. All the social media apps, Facebook, IG, Twitter, LinkedIn, Post News. Uh, I'm at Corey S. Nathan. That's at C-O-R-E-Y, S is in Sam, Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. And now here's Daryl Davis, Hate Undone on Village Squarecast. We probably heard the old adage, a tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. And so why would I think that a Klansman or Klanswoman would change their robe and hood? That's who they are, just like the tiger and the leopard. You know, but I was wrong, okay? A tiger cannot change its stripes, neither can a leopard change its spots because they were born with those stripes and those spots. A Klansman or Klan member is not born with that robe and hood. That is a learned behavior. A neo-Nazi is not born with a swastika. That is a learned ideology. So what can be learned can be unlearned. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, 
the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan, grateful to be hosting this edition of Village Squarecast and so glad to be able to be a part of wonderful programs like the one you'll be hearing today. Thanks for joining us for Hate Undone with special guest Daryl Davis. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. When our guest Daryl Davis was really young, a question began to form in his mind that became a lifelong pursuit. That question is, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? What we learn is Mr. Davis shares about his incredible life story is that his question was actually a diagnosis of a central problem, a sickness, if you will, in our culture. And in his pursuit of the answer, Daryl Davis has been providing a much needed antidote for what ails us. So this exemplary human being who's actually best known as an incredible musician who's traveled the world, which, by the way, you'll also be hearing some of Daryl's own musical contributions at the top of the program and then again at the close. Daryl Davis is also a virtuoso of peace and of bridging seemingly impossible divides. This program is facilitated by the Village Square's very own founder, Liz Joyner, along with Dr. Nasheed Majuin, the executive director of Florida Humanities. Liz introduces everyone at the beginning of the program, including our special guest, author, musician, Daryl Davis. So time to turn it over to some music before we hear from Liz for proper introductions. I'm Liz Joyner, founder and president of The Village Square, and on behalf of The Village Square and Florida Humanities, we're delighted that you've joined us tonight for Hate Undone with our very special guest, Daryl Davis. That's Double D Blues you've been listening to by Daryl Davis. This program is part of a multi-year series of digital programs, Unum Democracy Reignited, presented in partnership with Florida Humanities, exploring the past, present, and future of the American idea as it exists on paper, in the hearts of our people, and as that manifests in our lives. Tonight, I'll be sticking around to facilitate the program because this is my hero that we have um, brought to meet you tonight. Um, but I have the distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Nasheed Majuan, the Executive Director of Florida Humanities, who will join me in this endeavor tonight. 
Dr. Maduin's extensive professional career in the humanities includes his past leadership at the James Eaton Senior Southeastern Regional Black Archives at Florida A&M University and the Art Museum and Archives at Hampton University. Dr. Maduin has ho- uh, served on a host of boards, including the Blues Foundation, the Austin Arts Council, Arkansas Black History Commission, Virginia State Heritage Preservation Board, Visit Florida and the African-American History Task Force for the state of Florida. It is wonderful to have you with us. And do you ever sleep? (laughs) Oh, there's there's a lot of good work to be done. And I'm glad to partner with you. And this is a remarkable activity. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, it is really a pleasure. Also, um, you're going to have to be my wing human tonight because I might just get a little jittery. And so if I like freeze up because I'm finally, I really have been, um, talking about Daryl's work for as long as I've been doing this work and I've known about it. So if I, if I get kind of like, ah, starstruck, you'll, you'll come in and help me out. Right. Understandable is national, national icon we have here. Yeah. Yeah. We really do. So. I am thrilled now to introduce our special guest tonight, Mr. Daryl Davis. Daryl Davis is an international recording artist and leader of the Daryl Davis Band. He's played with a legendary blues band, formerly the Muddy Waters Band, which I remember that, and Chuck Berry. As an actor, Daryl has done film and television, including roles in the critically acclaimed HBO series, The Wire. He is the author of the book, Clandestine Relationships, and his documentary, Accidental Courtesy, got lots of attention from CNN, NBC, Good Morning America, NPR, The Washington Post, and others. Um, He also just told us that he is finishing a second book, so we're very excited about that. Um, Mr. Davis, welcome, sir. Thank you, Liz. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good evening, Nasheed. How are you? Good evening. Nice to talk with you. My pleasure. Yes, yes. So as I was prepping for this, I, I looked at our, our past um, program was with Chloe Valdry, who you may know her work. I know her um, well. But she, she writes about you. And so I actually had a question in there that was, please tell us the story of Daryl Davis. So I cannot tell you how thrilled I am to have you here tonight and say that we're going to turn it over to you, Mr. Davis, and you can tell us your own story. And we'll be back um, in a few minutes on the flip side. Yes. Okay, sounds good. Well, I'm age 64. I'll be 65 next month. But let's go back to my childhood. I was the child of parents in the U.S. Foreign Service. So I grew up all over the world, traveling starting at the age of three. And how it works is you're in a foreign country for two years with the American Embassy. And then you come back home here to the States. You're here for a few months, possibly a year. And then you get reassigned to another country for two years. So all of this started for me in 1961 at the age of three. Today, I'm a professional musician. I have my degree in uh, music and I perform all over the world and all over this country. But back then, my first exposure to school was overseas. I did kindergarten, I'm from Chicago originally, but I left the States at age three for two years. I did kindergarten, first grade, third grade, fifth grade, and seventh grade overseas. In between, I was back home here going to school. Now, my classes overseas were filled with kids from all over the world. Anybody who had an embassy there, their kids were in my, were in my school. My classmates were from Nigeria, Japan, Russia, 
France, Germany, Italy, Sweden, Australia, you name it, if they had an embassy, we all went together with their kids as well. So that was my baseline for what school should be. Let me just uh, show you an example of my second grade class. This is 1965-66. And what you see there are a multitude of kids from all over the world. In fact, myself, they are on the back row. I'm one of the two black kids on the back row there. And two other children, one little boy and one little girl are from the States. There were more Americans in the school, but we were the only three in second grade there. You see a black teacher there and a white teacher. You would never see that in our country back in 1965 in an integrated school like that. But that was my baseline for what school should be. So that's what I was accustomed to. But every time I would come home, I would be in either all black schools or black and white schools, meaning the still segregated or the newly integrated. And even though desegregation was passed by the Supreme Court four years before I was born, in 1954, I was born in 1958, schools did not integrate overnight. It took years and years for schools to become uh, integrated. And we're still even working on that in 2023, folks. So anyway, I would be either in all black schools or black and white schools. And there was not the amount of diversity in my classrooms back here in my own country that you saw there from overseas. Those kids were from all over the world in my second grade class. So one time when I came back, I was age 10 in the fourth grade. And I went to an integrated school in which I, in the fourth grade, and a, and a little black girl in second grade were the only black kids in the entire school. Let me show you my, uh, my fourth grade class and see if you can find me. There I am there on the back row. That's my fourth grade class. So some of the guys that you see there on the back row with me, we're all age 10. They some of them were Cub Scouts and they invited me to join the Scouts, which I did. It was a lot of fun. Got to go camping, tie some knots, things like that. We're talking 1968. Well, we, we were in Belmont, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. And right next door to Belmont are the towns of Lexington, Massachusetts and Concord, Massachusetts. So we had a march on Patriots Day from Lexington to Concord to commemorate the ride of Paul Revere. The Cub Scouts, the Boy Scouts, the Brownies, the Girl Scouts, the 4-H Club, and several other organizations. So I'm marching with my Cub Scout troop. I am the only black participant in this march. The streets are blocked off. The sidewalks on either side are lined with nothing but white people waving and smiling and cheering, having a great time. We all were having a great time until we got to a certain point in this parade route when suddenly, boom, I'm getting hit with bottles, soda pop cans, and just small debris from the street, but just a small group of uh, white spectators off to my right uh, on the sidewalk mixed in with the larger crowd. Not everybody was, was throwing things, just about four or five people. I remember there being a couple of kids, perhaps a year or two older than me, I didn't know them, and uh, perhaps their parents, because there were a couple of adults as well. Well, when this happened, I looked over and saw them. My first thought was, because I had no precedent, for this kind of behavior. You know, we didn't do that kind of stuff overseas. Everybody got along. So my first thought was, oh, these people over here, they don't like the scouts. 
That's how naive I was. It wasn't until my den mother, my cub master, my troop leader all came running over and huddled around me and quickly escorted me out of the danger that I realized I was the only person getting this special protection. I was the only person getting hit. So naturally, I questioned them. What did I do? I didn't do anything to them. Why, why are they doing this? And all they would do is shush me and rush me along, tell me to keep moving. Everything will be fine. So I kept on moving. But they never answered my question. So at the end of the day, when I got home, my mother and father, who were not present at the parade, were fixing me up, cleaning me up, putting Band-Aids on me, and asking me, how did you fall down and get all scraped up? I told them the truth. I didn't fall down. I told them exactly what had happened. And for the first time in my life, my mom and dad sat me down and explained to me what racism was. Now, believe it or not, at the age of 10, 1968, I had never heard the word racism. I had no clue what my mom and dad were talking about. That word, that word and that behavior were not in my sphere. I did not grow up around that. I grew up with people from all over the world, and none of them treated me that way. So my parents had to be deceiving me. They were pulling my leg. I did not believe my parents because my 10-year-old brain could not process the idea that someone who had never laid eyes on me, never spoken to me, knew absolutely nothing about me, would want to inflict pain upon me for no other reason than the color of my skin. It made no sense. So, and furthermore, the people who were doing that to me looked just like my friends, my, my little friends there in fourth grade, or my American friends overseas from the embassy, or my little French or Dutch or German or Swedish or Danish friends. They didn't behave like that. So my parents couldn't be telling me the truth. People don't do things like that. But I quickly found out that my parents were right. And so I formed a question at that age of 10 in my mind, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And now I've been looking for that answer for almost 55 years, because I'll be 65 uh, next month. I'm uh, 64 now. So in my, after, after uh, graduating college with my degree in music, I began traveling again. And I, I traveled all over the world performing. So when you take my childhood travels with my parents, and now my adulthood travels as a musician, and you combine them, I have now been in a total of 62 countries on six continents, and I have performed in all 50 of our states. What does that mean? It means that I have been exposed to a multitude of skin colors, ethnicities, cultures, ideologies, religions, etc., And all of that has helped shape who I have become. And I can tell you something, no matter how far I go from our country, the United States, whether it's right next door to Canada or right next door to Mexico or halfway around the globe, no matter how different the people may be who I encounter, perhaps they don't look like me, they don't speak my language or worship as I do, I always conclude one thing, and that is, that everybody I meet is a human being. And as such, every human being wants these five core values in their lives. Everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be respected. 
Everyone wants to be heard. Everyone wants to be treated fairly and truthfully. And everyone basically wants the same things for their family as we want for our family. And if we all can learn to apply those five core values or any of those values when we find ourselves in an adversarial situation or in a culture or society in which we are unfamiliar or uncomfortable, I can guarantee you that your navigation of that situation, that culture, that society will be much more smooth and much more positive. So lo and behold, I was playing a gig one night with a country band in which I was the only black person in this band. And uh, they, had, they were pretty well established here in the state of Maryland. I live in Maryland now. And uh, I joined them, country music had made a resurgence. And they played a place in a town called Frederick, Maryland. Frederick, Maryland is located about an hour and 20 minutes north of Washington, DC. There was a bar there, a lounge called the Silver Dollar Lounge. The Silver Dollar Lounge had a reputation of being an all white lounge, that, that black people were not welcome. Now there were no signs you know, that you all have seen in the history books, or if you're old enough, you've seen them in person where it says colored restroom, colored drinking fountain, all that kind of thing. No signs like that, but you knew if you were black, you were not welcome there. And uh, you know, when you go somewhere where you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, it's not always a good combination, folks. So here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge. And my first time in there, the band had played there before. And so I'm the only black person in the band, only black person in the lounge. And we did the first set, we took a break and I'm following the band over to the band table to sit down on the break. I feel somebody from behind put their arm across my shoulder. Now I don't know anybody in this place, right? Except for the band, I see them all ahead of me. So I'm turning around trying to see who's touching me. It was this white gentleman, I'd say 15 to 18 years older than me. Big smile on his face. And he, he says, man, I sure like your all's music. I said, thank you. And I shook his hand. And he says, man, I love your piano playing. This is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like Jerry Lee Lewis. Well, I was not offended, but I was rather surprised because you know I considered it a compliment, not necessarily the black person part, but to be compared to the late, great Jerry Lee Lewis. But uh, I was surprised that this man being at least a decade and a half older than me, did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's uh, piano style, which I quickly explained to him that Jerry Lee got it from the same place I got it from, from black blues and boogie woogie piano players. That's where that rockabilly rock and roll piano style came from. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. I ain't never heard no black man play like that except for you. So I'm thinking, okay, well, this guy maybe never saw Little Richard or Fast Domino. I said, look, man, I said, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee is a very good friend of mine. He's told me himself where his influences came from. Well, the guy didn't believe that either, but he was fascinated with me and wanted me to go back to his table with him and let him buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink alcohol, but I, I went back to his table, let him buy me a cranberry juice. He paid for it, took his glass, and he clinked my glass and cheered me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. Well, now I'm sitting there completely baffled. Because now you already have my background, right? I've been all over the world. I've sat down with anybody and everybody. How is it that this man, a decade and a half older than me, 
had never sat down before with a black man. I was baffled. And so innocent, I wasn't trying to be facetious. Innocently, I asked him, I said, why? And I, I was naive. And he didn't answer me. He stared at the tabletop. I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me. He looked back at me just as plain as day. And he said, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Well, I burst out laughing because now I didn't believe him. I know a lot about the Ku Klux Klan. I know they don't just come up and hug some black guy and want to buy them a drink and hang out with them and, and praise any kind of musical talent they may have. It doesn't work that way. So I figured the guy's, you know, pulling a joke on me. I'm laughing. He goes into his pocket, pulls out his billfold, flips through it, hands me his clan membership card. Yes, card-carrying member. I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia, a red circle with a white cross and a blood drop in the center. I stopped laughing. This thing was for real. So it wasn't funny anymore. I gave it back to him. We talked about the Klan and some other things. And he was very friendly, gave me his phone number, wanted me to call him whenever I was to return to this bar because he wanted to bring his friends. As he put it, he wanted them to see the black guy who played like Jerry Lee Lewis. I'm not sure he called me a black guy to his friends, but that's how he explained it to me. So I would call him every six weeks. And, uh, you know, we were on a rotation with other bands there on the weekends. And so uh, he'd, he'd show up. He'd bring uh, Klansmen and Klanswomen. You know, they didn't come in robes and hoods. They came in regular uh, street clothes. And they'd watch me play. They'd get out on the dance floor and dance to our music. So I got to know some of them, the ones who wanted to meet me. On the breaks, I'd make my way over to his table. But a couple of them, when they'd see me coming, would get up and move to the other side of the room. Like, you know, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to touch you. We just want to look at you. Yeah, which was fine by me. The others would hang there and they were curious. And we, you know, we would sit down and meet and talk. So this went on for a while until I quit that band at the end of the year, of that year. And I went back to playing rock and roll and rhythm and blues and whatever else was going on. Well, a few years later, it dawned on me, Daryl, you blew it. The answer to your question that has been plaguing you since the age of 10 fell right into your lap. You didn't even realize it. Who better to ask that question of, how can you hate me when you don't even know me, than to ask someone who would go so far as to join an organization that has over a hundred year history of practicing hating people who don't believe as they believe and who do not look like them. So I got back in contact with that guy. I decided I would write a book. I will travel around the country and interview grand dragons and imperial wizards and rank and file clansmen and clanswomen and ask that question and write a book about it. I never set out to convert anybody. I just want to find out why. Why do you hate me? How can you hate me? You don't even know me. So in the course of traveling around the country, I went up north, went down south, went to the Midwest, went to the West and interviewed hundreds of clan, of clan members. Some would talk to me, some would not talk to me. Some want to fight, you know, got violent and things like that. Fortunately, that was, you know, few and far between. But uh, those who talked to me did the interview. I put out the book and now I'm putting out my second book. I've been in this, in this field of race reconciliation going now on 41 years. So I'm gonna show you a picture from about uh, almost, almost 30 years ago, 29 years ago. Here, I went to a Klan rally. And uh, you see, I'm a little thinner there, got a little more hair on my head. 
uh, it's towards the end of the rally. The, the fiery cross is uh, the, the flames are dying out. But I asked a Klansman if he would pose for a picture with me, which he did. So that was uh, 29 years ago. Here's one from, uh, from seven years ago. This one here that you're looking at is in the state of Maryland. This one here is in the state of Missouri, Missouri from about seven years ago. There were a lot more Klansmen and Klanswomen there, but the rally is over and they're over at a picnic table just out of the camera shot getting food and beverages. They always leave some Klansmen around the burning cross because the cross will fall over at the end and they don't want anything to catch on fire. So they stand guard there. Now, what, what do I do at Klan rallies? I talk to people, I converse with them because I'm a firm believer that a missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. Nothing gets resolved without conversation. And you know, the greatest weapon against racism, to combat racism, is also the least expensive weapon. It's free. It's also the most underused weapon. It's called conversation. Today, I don't know what is up, but people want to engage in cancel culture. That's not how you do it. You do it by conversing, having these conversations. This guy, which you see I'm doing right here. When I came on that rally ground that day, the guy you see facing me with the mask on, he threatened my life when I came on that rally ground. That was seven years ago. Ever since then, he's, he's been sending me a Christmas present every year, and he is no longer in the Klan, and I own that robe and that hood. It's now in my collection. So this is the power of conversation. This is the power of applying those five core values that I told you everyone wants. If we can learn to do that, we can, we can definitely get ahead. And this works not just on racial divide, but also on political divide or any kind of, of adversarial thing. You know, in fact, let's tell you what, let's take race off the table for a second. There are other hot topics out here. We have abortion, nuclear weapons, global warming, the war in the Middle East, the war between Russia and Ukraine, the presidential election. Somebody's on one side, somebody's on the other. Apply those five core values. Have civil dialogue. You may not agree, you may agree, but at least you can navigate that situation in a more positive and constructive and productive manner. And that is what we need. It bothers me a great deal as an American that we call ourselves the greatest nation on the face of this earth. Now, don't get me wrong, I love my country, I'm a patriot, but I do have a problem with that statement. Now, perhaps we are the greatest nation on the face of this earth technologically. After all, we Americans, we built the technology to put a man on the moon and when, and when astronaut Neil Armstrong was up there on the moon walking around talking about one small step for man and one giant leap for mankind, we were able to talk to Neil Armstrong live all the way from Earth all the way to the moon via satellite radio phone. We Americans 
invented that technology. Everybody sitting in your home or wherever you may be watching this program right now, obviously you have internet. You also have a cell phone and you also have email. You can talk to anybody on the face of this earth. You hit a few numbers, hit a few letters and words, hit send, and you're talking to you're, you know, people in Florida, you can talk to people out in California, you talk to people in China, in Africa, in Europe, in, in Australia, wherever you want to talk. How is it that we as Americans can talk to people as far away as the moon or anywhere on, on this planet, but yet there are still so many of us who have difficulty talking to the person who lives right next door because that person is a different skin color or a different persuasion, a different religion, a different whatever. So it seems to me that before we can call ourselves the greatest nation on the face of this earth, perhaps our ideology needs to catch up to our technology. And when we get them both up there, then we can truly brag about how great we are. Because folks, we are living in the 21st century. We are living in space age times. So tell me, why are we still thinking with stone age minds? So at this point, I wanna invite back my co-hosts, uh, Nasheed and uh, Liz to join me for a conversation and answer some of the questions they may have and you might have. Okay, I'm already having problems with freezing up because I'm so overwhelmed. I'm not going to get through this without crying some. I, it is really hard to imagine at a time when many of us cannot get through a Thanksgiving dinner with someone we disagree with, how in the world you could, you could form these relationships and keep them over the course of years when they when it was with people who so foundationally disapproved of you how how do you how do you do that how did you do that okay well let me give you my favorite quote of all time and then let me show you how it applies my favorite quote of all time is by mark twain the author and it's called the travel quote and mark twain said travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and narrow-mindedness. And many of our people need it sorely on these accounts. Broad, wholesome, charitable views of men and things cannot be acquired by vegetating in one little corner of the earth all one's lifetime. And this is so true. Every time we travel, every time we go somewhere, see something new, meet somebody different, we are broadening our horizons. Now, all that travel that I described to you that I've done does not make me a better human being than someone who has done less travel. What it does is it gives me a broader perspective of humanity. And that's what I wanna share with people who have done less travel. But understand something, the travel that I have done involved me leaving this country, going across the Atlantic Ocean or across the Pacific Ocean, you know, or traveling from East Coast to West Coast in this country, et cetera. You know, and I started that at age three in 1961, and I'm still doing it. But today, we have the internet. We can travel virtually. We can take a tour of Venice. We can take a tour of the Eiffel Tower sitting in our bedroom. 
on our laptop. You know, we can go to, to, a, to a 3D tour of these places, meet people in other countries, establish relationships. I call it walking across the cafeteria. But before I get to that, you know, I would say all these different cultures and things that I've been exposed to, all of it helped shape who I've become. And I've been exposed to so many different cultures that when I deal with people like neo-Nazis, KKK people, I just consider them another culture. It's not a culture that I would subscribe to, but I consider them another culture and I treat them as such. I show them the respect that I would sit down and listen to them. I allow them to be heard. And when I say respect, I'm not saying I respect what they have to say. I'm saying I respect their right to say it. And I'll sit down and listen to them. And in turn, guess what? They sit down and listen to me, all right? So I'm not trying to change their minds. I'm giving them other thoughts, other ideas. And when they absorb those things, many of them end up changing their own minds. Because, you know, I don't, I'm not trying to convert anybody. I'm just trying to find out why. You've clearly been able to find their humanity in inside of that relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it involves that, con that conversation, not cancel culture that we see uh, so much of today. Yeah, I want to contribute to that point. Uh, you know, early on in your, your life, you were equipped with the tools to listen and understand and not prejudge a situation or a person. And that is a critical part of engaging in the civil discourse. You understand and you know, and you're not afraid to encounter something that's new or different from the way you see things. This is very, this is very true, Nasheed. And you know, I would like to think, but I can't, I can't be certain. I would like to think that I would be that way even if I had not done all that travel. But there is a possibility, if I had grown up here in my own country, all my 64 years, would I be involved in this or would I be staying as far away from those people as I could? Mm. So now, so we, we have, I'd I, I like to push back on that slightly because if you're encountering the members of the Ku Klux Klan around the country and they decided at some point to make that change on their own, that's because those five values you mentioned were deep down in them at their core, and you knew how to address that. So that means maybe that altruism, that intrinsic element of good natureness was in them in the beginning, and you found a way to open that door. But that door was open to you early on. Yes, indeed. And, you know, people are not born with that kind of hatred. Uh, I think what, you know, what it is is this. All of us, probably you, probably Liz, and anybody out there viewing or listening, as children, we probably heard the old adage, a tiger does not change its stripes. A leopard does not change its spots. Um, and, and so why would I think that a Klansman or Klanswoman would change their robe and hood? That's who they are, just like the tiger the, and the leopard. You know, but I was wrong, okay? A tiger cannot change its stripes, neither can a leopard change its spots because they were born with those stripes and those spots. A Klansman or Klan member is not born with that robe and hood. That is a learned behavior. A neo-Nazi is not born with a swastika. That is a learned ideology. So what can be learned can be unlearned. And it's a matter 
as you said, soliciting that humanity in them. And that comes from listening to one another. You cannot expect anyone to listen to you if you're not willing to listen to them. That's true. So there are a couple of questions from the audience that were sort of um, on target here. They want to know, when you went to rallies, were you afraid that you might be hurt or killed? And then did you bring others um, for backup just in case? <laughs> that's, that's a good question. Uh, no, I was not afraid. And I'll tell you why. Um, there are very few things that, that frighten me in life. I, I don't know why. And people have often wondered about that. And I've wondered about it myself. But no, I was not afraid. But also, there are two kinds of rallies. There are public Klan rallies and there are private Klan rallies. So what's the difference? The public Klan rally would be like in a public park. So they have to go to City Hall, apply for a permit, you know, to hold a rally, just like, you know, any of us would, if you wanted to have a family reunion or sell hot dogs and lemonade or whatever, you know, we do in, in parks, we get a permit. All right. So they have to do the same thing, but it's a public park. So therefore the public can come. Now, if there is violence and people throwing things and, you know, there's going to be a physical uh, mayhem, there's going to be a barrier of police between protesters and the people participating in the rally, in the Klan rally. All right. But if there's not that kind of violence, say, say the park is in a town that is um, welcoming of that kind of ideology, then chances are you can just walk up freely and talk to these people. Um, so there, those are public rallies which anybody can go to. A private rally is held usually on a Klan person's property or somebody's property that they know. And you know you just can't walk on private property unless you are invited. So over time, as I developed relationships with clan leaders, like a grand dragon, grand dragon means state leader, imperial wizard means national leader. So as I developed relationships with some of these leaders and they began trusting me, they would invite me to private rallies. So I would be on, the, on, on that private property, watching them parade around in their robes and hoods around a big burning cross and proclaiming white power and all this other kind of stuff. Um, now, granted, there were some people there who did not want me there and did not like the idea of my being there. However, they had to obey their leaders. If the leader invited me, you know, there, there is a regimented chain of command. And they cannot go against that. It's a kind of like a military chain of command. So while they didn't like me there, there's nothing they could do about it. So I'm assuming you gained their trust in some ways by letting them be them. I mean, how 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 did they start to trust you to bring you into the inner circle? By applying those five core core values. Uh, I want you to listen to what this uh, imperial wizard has to say at a rally uh, that I was at. It's, it's, you know, he, uses, he uses the N-word there, but that's, that's, that's the world that I live in. That's the world that they, that they practice. Davis is one of the few African-Americans you will ever find attending a KKK rally. More than attending, he is welcome. I got more respect for that black man than I do you white niggers out there. Has friendship transcended the color barrier? Listen to Kelly at a Klan rally. The strange relationship of a KKK wizard and his black buddy. In Washington, I'm Carl Rochelle.
CNN Sunday morning. Okay. Yeah, you heard that Imperial Wizard say, we may not agree on everything, but at least he respects me to sit down and listen to me, and I respect him to sit down and listen to him. In that one sentence, he didn't realize it. He used three of those five core values I just told you about. <laughs> I told you, yeah. everybody wanted to be loved. Everybody wants to be respected. We all want to be heard. We all want to be treated fairly. And we all want the same things for our family as they want for their family. He said, I respected him. That's one of those values. He said, I sat down and listened to him. That means I allowed him to be heard. That's the second value. And because I respected him and sat down and listened to him, he said he respected me and sat down and listened to me. That's treating each other fairly. Right. He named three of those values, okay? And as a result of my applying those values time and time again, every time I would meet with him, he quit the Ku Klux Klan and renounced it and shut down the group. He didn't pass it down to his second in command when he quit, he shut it down. And today I own that robe and hood that you saw him wearing by applying those values. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time because he didn't become that way overnight. He's not gonna lose it you know, or, or, you know, or, or overnight. It's like, it's like this gut that I have on here that you can't see because I'm hiding below the screen, right? You know? <laughs> so, listen, I used to be skinny like, like, like a Nasheed here, but you know, I put on some weight you know, over years. I'm trying to lose it and I am losing it. It's the camera. I'm, I'm right there with you. <laughs> I'm not going to lose it overnight. I didn't put it on overnight. I'm not going to lose it overnight. So can I pull on that thread a little bit? You said, so canceling people is not the way to get no. this done. Um, talk a little bit more about why and compared to what you've done, which clearly has worked. Okay, listen, our society, our country, our life, our job, these things can only become one of two things. Our country can only become one, that which we sit back and watch it become, or two, that which we stand up and make it become. So we all as individuals have to ask ourselves, do I wanna sit back and see what my life becomes, what my job becomes, what my country becomes? Or do I wanna stand up and make my job, make my life, make my country become what I wanna see? And that's, that's a question that we all have to answer individually. And in order to do, if you choose the latter, the only way you're going to do that is by simulating with other people, getting to know them, because they, you know, you're not here by yourself. And I call it walking across the cafeteria. All right. We can do it physically or we can do it virtually. Let me tell you, for example, I'm, you know, pre-COVID, people in office buildings, corporations, companies, or schools, diverse places where you have students. Or, or employees of different backgrounds. They're, they're, they're working on the same project. They're getting along. They even might even share the same cubicle while they work on that project. But what happens at 12 noon? They go downstairs to the cafeteria and blacks sit with blacks, Hispanics sit with Hispanics. This group sits with the same group of their people. This is, this is called self-segregation, right? We, we self-segregate. Does that mean that these people are racist? No, not necessarily. People tend to feel more comfortable around familiarity. 
I never knew familiarity because every two years I was in some strange place, right? So everybody was familiar to me. So that's why I can adjust to different people, right? So anyway, I say this. Now, if you walk across the cafeteria and sit at somebody else's table, and they say, oh, no, 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 go back to your own table, get back over there, then yes, there's a problem and it has to be addressed and it should be addressed, okay? But I would say this, once or twice a week, Leave your comfort group, walk across the cafeteria and sit at somebody else's table because you have a lot to teach them. You have a lot to learn from them. And in the process, you will make a new friend and you will broaden your horizons. And if you can't do it physically because you telecommute, then get online and, and call one of your coworkers in some other country or some other state and have a chit chat with them you know, during non-working hours or whatever, or make an appointment during work working hours to talk with them, you know, after you get off work, sit down and just get to know one another, learn about their families, learn about, you know, what they practice, you know, what, what they do at home, what they eat, et cetera, et cetera. This broadens our humanity. That's called walking, that's my term, walking across the cafeteria, in person or virtually. I love it, I love it. Darrell, I have a question. Um, now we're talking about, you've mentioned your age several times and the geographical differences uh, that you've encountered domestically and internationally. Um, I'm curious to know if there was any consistency in the generation and the age of the people who are open to your dialogue. And, and actually, let me tag on to that an audience question. They wonder if you've noticed any difference between um, people in the North and the South on this point. Uh, yeah. Both questions, excellent. No, uh, it, it all depends upon the individuals. I mean, I know I know young people who are just as feisty as some of the older people, some older people or who are set in their ways, but they wouldn't sit down and talk. Others want to, you know, want to fight. You know, I, I've unfortunately I've been involved in in violent confrontations because I'm going to defend myself if somebody puts their hands on me, of course. But fortunately, like I said, you know, those have been few and far between, and even some of those people. Uh, you know, who, in, who engage in violence with me, some of them have come back to me, not all of them, oh. have come back to me and apologized and sat down and talked, and some of them are now out and, and have become friends of mine. Goodness, amazing. Because it's, it's a learned behavior. So we have, to, we have to get through our head. What can be learned can become unlearned. Mm. And, you know, if we had no hope, then why even bother trying to change things. You know, you, you can't say, well, I want to change things, but then not get out there and do something about it and realize it's going to take time. All right, so this is truly a study in human decency. You know, sometimes you have the discussions with people and, and there may be some apathy or reluctance or anxiety in trying to influence change. I know we've talked about change and innovation, but at the core, we're saying, we're making an argument that there's a level of decency in everyone and expect That's that. right. We should expect that. 100%. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think, Liz, you mentioned about somebody, you know, not wanting to go to dinner at their family's home because of, of political differences. We, we, we saw more of that in the last few years than we've ever seen before. You know, I'm not going to, to Thanksgiving dinner with my family because my sister voted for so-and-so and I voted for this one and I just can't talk to her. You know, that, that's cancel culture right there. 
you know, that, that's where it starts. Mm -hmm. Listen, no matter who is going to become president, that person is only going to be there for a minimum of four years or a maximum of eight years. How long have you been with your family? Decades? You know, and your best friend? Decades? Are you going to throw away decades of a relationship over somebody who's only around for four to eight years? Come on. That doesn't even make common sense. It's not rocket science, you know? So when you put it in that kind of perspective, then you do some introspection and say, you know what? Okay, so he or she voted for so-and-so. It wasn't my choice, but let me listen to them and see why. What happened in her life or his life that, that gave them reason to, to vote? Oh, well, maybe I understand that now. Okay, well, I wouldn't have done it, but I see why you did it. And then maybe they'll understand why I voted for this one. And so we can agree to disagree, or we can agree with that person, or they can agree with us. But we have to have that civil dialogue, not cancel people out. And see, here's what we do. We have to understand something. One's perception is one's reality. Uh -huh. Everybody knows that. You know, Even if it's not real, it's their reality. Uh -huh. And you cannot change somebody's reality. They only know what they know. And if you attack what they know, they're going to push back. They're going to push back because you are attacking what they think is real. So never try to change somebody's reality. If you want their reality to change, what you do is this. You offer them a better perception or better perceptions. Mm. And if they resonate with one of your perceptions, then they will change their own reality because their perception becomes their reality. I'll just give you a quick example, hypothetical one. Let's say, uh, Liz, you have a, a young seven or eight-year-old son, and he goes to a magic show with his buddies, and he comes home and tells you, Mom, you're not going to believe this. You know, this magician asked for a female volunteer, and 50 women raised their hand, and he picked one out of the audience, brought her up on stage, and had her climb into this long box and stick her feet out the hole at that end and put her head out the hole at this end. And then he closed the lid and he took a saw, a chainsaw, and went right down the middle of the box. He cut her in half. And then he told her to wiggle her feet. And she wiggled her feet. And you say, listen, it didn't really happen like that. Yes, it did. I was there. You weren't even there. I saw it with my own eyes. You weren't even there. See what happens? You attacked his reality. He knows what he saw. He saw a man cut a woman in half and she wiggled her feet. And you were not there and you have no right to tell him what he didn't see and it wasn't real. Okay? You don't attack his reality. And to make it even more real, he tells you after the guy cut the box in half and she wiggled her feet, he took the half of the box with the feet and moved it over there to stage right and took the half of the head and moved it over there to stage left. So there's lots then, of evidence, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, and then and then he tells you the magician walked over and talked to the lady's head and she talked back to him. Right? <laughs> and then he brings the two halves back together. He does this abracadabra incantation over the over the lid of the box, and then he opens it up and she climbs out full form, no blood, back together. He cut her in half and he put her back together. And you say, listen. That's an illusion. No, it's not. I'm telling you, right? You've attacked his reality again. And so now he's mad. So and he's canceling you out. What you do is you don't attack his reality. You, you offer him a better perception. 
you say, listen, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I hear you. But do you think it's possible that maybe, just perhaps, when he asked for a female volunteer and you say he picked one of the women out of the audience and brought her up on stage, you think that maybe that woman might work for him? Maybe he planted her in the audience and she, and she travels all over the country with him. She knows the trick and she sits in the same seat in every theater that they go to. So he always knows where to find her. And when she climbs into the box, there's already a pair of mannequin gummy legs laying on the floor of the box that are wearing the same stockings and shoes that she has on. So she just picks up those legs and shoves them out the hole. And she brings her own knees up under her chest. So her whole body is on that half of the box. So when he cuts the box in half, the sorrow never even touches her. And when he says, wiggle your feet, she just shakes those poles and the feet wiggle. But now when he separates the boxes, those feet can't move anymore. So he has to, to distract you from looking at those feet. So he goes over there to her head. Of course, the head's going to talk back. Her whole body's over there. So now you're not, you're, not, you're not focusing on those feet anymore. You're following him. And then when he brings them back together, she just pulls those legs out, leaves them on the floor of the box, and she climbs out. And then your son, your son says, hmm, you know, that might be the only way that could work. So you've offered him a better perception. He resonated with that perception, and now that perception becomes his reality. And to be able to do that, you have to be talking to him. You have to be exactly. sitting next to him. You have to be in relationship. Exactly. A missed opportunity for conversation is a missed opportunity for reconciliation. Well, you know, I've learned something here because... Yeah, you didn't know the trick. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely, didn't know, definitely didn't know the trick. But, so, but to, to start that off, you had to give the respect of accepting his reality, whether you agree with it or not. At right. the, from, from the beginning, you had to give one of those values. You had to give that person respect. And in return, they allowed you to speak and share their alternatives. They listened to you. That's that value, treating each other. You, you, you nailed it, man. That's, that's it. You know, you don't have to respect what they're saying, but show them the respect that you will listen to them. Okay? Because mm -hmm. people want to be heard. They want to be respected. And then in turn, they reciprocate. Mm. And, that's, and that's the fairness. That's the, that's the fair uh, core value. So there's this an amazing um, point in Accidental Courtesy in the movie, which I highly recommend everybody. You can watch it on Amazon. Do it. Do it. When you are about to get married to a white woman, you're in the room with one of your friends who was currently in the KKK. And uh, the producer asks, well, wait, you know, he asked the KKK member, you're going to this wedding, you know, you don't believe in interracial marriage. Why are you going? And his answer was, it's Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> so talk, talk yeah. about that. Yeah, he can't. He, listen, that guy that you're talking about. OK, check this out. He was the Grand Dragon of Maryland at one time, which means state yeah. leader. OK, now uh, he went to prison. He went to prison for four years for conspiring to bomb a synagogue up on Liberty Road in Baltimore, Maryland, all right? He continued running the Klan from within the prison through his guy on the outside. When he got released four years later, he took it back over and continued running it. 
He got into some trouble a couple years later, went back to prison for three years for assault with intent to murder two black men with a shotgun. So now, so he, he did seven years in prison, all right? While he was Grand Dragon of the Klan, conspiring to bomb a synagogue and, and you know, shoot up people or whatever, you don't get paid money to be a Klan leader. You might get a couple, you know, a, a small stipend out of the Klan dues, but you have to have a regular job. Grand Dragon, Exalted Cyclops, Great Titan, Imperial Wizard, these are all titles. You have to have a regular job. His regular job, while he was in the Klan, was Baltimore City police officer. Mm. He was not, he was not a police officer undercover in the Klan gathering intelligence. He was a bona fide Klansman on the Baltimore police force. All right. Mm. And um, anyway, uh, he went on to become one of my best friends. He got out of this because of me, because of our friendship. And that's why he came to my wedding. He invited my you know, then my, my then girlfriend, now my wife, over to Christmas dinner at his home. He came to our wedding. And do you know he sent me a nice letter, you know, saying, you know, the, how, how impressed he was. He, he said, he said, your wedding was just like ours. <laughs> he was expecting, you know, <laughs> because he never did a black wedding. Right. It's not a black wedding, it's a wedding, you know? Right. It's that exposure. It's that, it's, it's that walking across the cafeteria. Now, I told you the story about the Klansman who walked up to me when I came off the stage at the Silver Dollar Lounge. Mm-hmm. That Klansman, who I, he and I became friends and got me started on this journey of traveling and interviewing these people, he literally walked across the cafeteria to talk to me. All right. He left his Klan buddy at the table because he liked the music I was playing. He never saw a black guy play music like that, even though he didn't realize it was black music, right. all right, you know, in a country band. And he walked across the lounge to talk to me. And as a result, a friendship happened, and that's what got me here today. So walking across the cafeteria does work. Whether we do it or whether they do it, it is effective. Yeah, another point that that story reminded me of early in the uh, this conversation was consistent communication and patience. You know, you mentioned several times that you would correspond by letter or you would call someone every six weeks and you didn't expect or you didn't anticipate them to make a change immediately. You right. gave that relationship time to nurture and foster and grow into something that was meaningful. You were also cultivating an atmosphere of respect. Yes, yes, indeed. And at the same time, you know, they, one of the most important things that I've learned is this. Well, a couple of things. One, your most valuable asset that you have in your life when you deal with anybody is your credibility. Mm. That's priceless, okay? Your credibility. And so you're already talking to somebody who thinks you are not credible at all. That's why they're in that organization because you are inferior and they are superior. So you have no credit, all right? But your credibility is of the utmost importance because while you actively learning about someone else, at the very same time, you are passively teaching them about yourself. Mm-hmm. So you think you're gleaning all this information from them, but they're observing you and they're, you know, 
imbibing or whatever, whatever they can get out of you. And they're evaluating it. And it's when, because, you know, they're expecting you to behave the way they perceive you, which is negative. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you don't behave that way, it causes a cognitive dissonance with them because he's not following the rules, you know, or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and they have, to, they have to adjust to that and find out what's real and what's not real. And, and it troubles them. And then they finally decide, oh, you know, and, and what you don't want to happen is, well, you know, Daryl's okay for a black guy. It's all those other black people, okay? You, you, you will find that happening. But what I do is this. When I feel that I can trust somebody, I'm not afraid of them myself. But when I feel that I can trust somebody that they're not going to hurt anybody else that I bring, you know, to the, to the table or whatever, I will invite some of my other friends, some of my Jewish friends, some of my other black friends, some of my white friends who, who look just like them but don't agree with their ideology. So that way that they see Daryl's not the exception. Maybe I'm the exception thinking this way because he's seeing other people that don't fit the stereotypical image that he had in his mind that his echo chamber around him keeps reinforcing and mm-hmm. causing that cognitive dissonance. So then he has to make, make a decision. Do I disregard Daryl's skin color or, or the fact that this person is Jewish and, um, and, and, and change my ideological direction because I know that what I've learned is wrong or do I consider his skin color or consider the fact that he is a Muslim, a Jew, or whatever it is I don't like, and continue living a lie. That becomes their dilemma. And in most cases, people will follow the truth, the path of least resistance. But there will always be those who will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist, you know, on on any side. Well, it's like your um, kindness and your generosity is pushing, is making what feels like a vicious cycle that we're trapped in with sort of uh, like hate, reciprocated by like hate into a virtuous cycle. And and um, going to an audience question sort of related to that, um, they're talking about how how it seems like all everybody's opinions is getting more and more extreme right now and more and more militant on both sides of the aisle, on both sides of race. Because we keep fueling fire with fire. Like Dr. King said, you know, you don't drive out hate with hate. You Uh drive out with love. You have to have that counterbalance. You know, I mean, you know, if 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 you put your hand in hot water and it's burning you, you don't pour you don't put more hot water on it, you turn on the cold water real quick. (laughs) You know, you need you need that counterbalance. So if somebody's hating on me, why don't I want to express hate back? You know? Now, I mean, the, the only time I would express something similar back would be if somebody is physically trying to hurt me, and that's my only, you know, uh, way of getting out of it is to put a stop to it by by enacting the same thing. But I'm not going to, you know, push out hate you know, because hate's coming in. That just increases the whole hate, and it just becomes, like you said, a vicious cycle. And you're right; that's what we're seeing politically. We saw it on TV the other night during the State of the Union. Oh goodness! Um, so we've got like so many comments in the in, um, from the audience about um, you. Um, you are my hero. Thank you for your inspiration and devotion. How do you cultivate more people whose curiosity and courage overpowers their defensiveness, intolerance, and fear? How do we make tens of million people 
who listen first, which is a wonderful organization who is co-streaming tonight, and converse with respect and curiosity with no intent to convert or malign. Okay, you remember, let's go back to uh, high school, junior high school, you know, when, uh, when we would have our school dance. Mm. And we all, we're, we're all excited about going to the dance on Saturday night, you know? There's somebody that, you know, that we really want to dance with and she doesn't know it, but we're going to ask her to dance. <laughs> yeah, you see, you've been there, Liz, I can tell. <laughs> so so let's, let's go back there in our mind. And, we, and we, go, we go to the school dance, we're in the gym, and everybody's standing there with their back to the wall, eyeballing everybody else. And, and the band is playing great songs. You want to dance, but nobody wants to be the first person on the dance floor, right? Finally, somebody gets on the dance floor, and then everybody else gets on the dance floor. Let's be that person who is the first person on the dance floor, okay? Let's, let's stop waiting for somebody else. You know, we can, we can do something on our own for once in our lives, and this is a positive thing. So, you know, let, let's not be afraid to converse, let's, you know, but don't go into it blindly. Know who you are but, and, and, and learn as much as you can about the other person, regardless of what the adversarial topic is, whether it's Republican, Democrat, Black, White, you know, Christian, Jew, whatever it is, whatever is on the opposite end, learn as abortion, pro-choice, whatever, learn the other person's position. Put yourself in that place and see how you would think. And then go in. Go in with your beliefs because here's what happens. You start this far apart. You're at opposite ends of the spectrum. But you talk with your worst enemy or your biggest adversary for five minutes. You will find something in common. And that gap narrows. Mm. You talk for another five minutes, you find even more in common. And the gap narrows some more. And when you're right here, you are in a relationship with your adversary. Whether you like it or not, you are in a relationship with that person. You may not be going out and having dinner with the person, but you are having a cordial relationship with him or her. You talk some more, you find more in common. And now you're, 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 you're friendly. You're having a friendly relationship. Even though you may disagree on some things, you're having a friendly relationship. But when you've gotten to this point, you have found so much in common that they... You know, that, that the trivial things that you have in contrast, such as skin color, or whether you go to a church, a synagogue, a mosque, or a temple, begin to matter less and less. Because it's very hard to hate somebody when you're standing right there in front of them, having a conversation, speaking the same language. You both like the same James, you both like the same James Bond movie, but perhaps he likes Sean Connery and you like Roger Moore. Okay, so what? You still like James Bond. You know, I, you know, or he thinks you know the king, the the king of rock and roll is Chuck Berry. Everyone thinks it's Elvis Presley. Okay, but you still like rock and roll. You know, so you you have these things in common, and, and you develop that friendship, and you have this conversation. It's hard to hate that person, and that's what happened with with the guy you're talking about, Liz. You know, well, it's Daryl. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he any special power. <laughs> yeah, I have to I have to imagine that you know the concept of be the example can be uh intimidating for some people but from your perspective if you start from a place of integrity you said know yourself know the values uh be consistent with who you are and the conversations you have as those those two divisive points start to get closer 
there are people watching that. You That's know, right. The CNN clip that you shared where the, the leader of the organization said, I like this person better than I like you. And the expectation should have been opposite. Somebody was curious about the nature of that relationship. Somebody mm-hmm. wanted to find out what makes that relationship tick. Why does he have so much trust and so much love and respect for somebody he's supposed to be teaching us not to love and respect? Right, because of that credibility. And the thing of it is, is I want to see these people, not just the first time interview them, okay, I got your story, now I never see you again. I want to see them again. I invite them to my gigs. If I'm playing in their county, hey, you know, if you're not doing anything Friday night, whatever, I'm playing over at so-and-so's bar. Come on out and, and see what I do. You know, and they come, you know? So I, I keep in contact with them, all right? And let them see me in my natural habitat, which is behind a piano playing rock and roll or country or whatever. And they can enjoy that, all right? My credibility is built up because I'll tell you what, like I said, while you are actively learning about someone else, you are passively teaching them about yourself. And if they find you not to be credible, it's over. Because they, you know, they already think you're not credible. And if you do the slightest thing wrong, that reinforces them. It exacerbates already what they think. You know? So it's like, for example, you know, if, you, if you ask some lady out on a date and, um, and, and you know, put it this way, you only have one opportunity, one opportunity to make a good first impression. Yes. Okay? You may have a second or third opportunity to make an impression if you're lucky, but you only have one opportunity to make a good first impression. Mm. And most people would judge you on their first impression of you. So if you ask somebody out and they go out with you, and for whatever reason, you know, they're not impressed with you, maybe they caught you in a lie or whatever it was you did, your credibility is shot. And you say, hey, listen, you know, I really enjoyed myself. You know, can I take you out again next week? They're like, uh, no, I don't think so. You know, whatever, right? They're done. All right. right. So with these people, uh, you know, they're not coming to be converted. You know, they're curious as to why a black man wants to know about why they want to be in the Klan and blah, blah, blah. Uh, but in, initially, they didn't know I was black. Okay, they thought I was a white guy coming to interview them. Of course, they freaked out when they saw me. But now everybody knows, you know, because word travels quickly. But so now they're curious. They want to see them again. So I, I, I thank them for their time. Maybe I didn't agree on anything with them that day. But I thank them. I listened to them. I showed them that respect. I'm, I'm being fair. And um, I say, hey, listen, you know, hey, I really appreciate your time. You know, you've given me a lot of information. Let me absorb it. Let me process it. I might have a couple of questions maybe in a couple of weeks. Is it okay if I check back in with you and maybe, you know, get together again, just review some things? Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Because even though they don't like me, I'm credible. Right. If I, you know, attack their reality, I, I, they, they catch me in a line. They say, nah, you got your interview. We're done. I don't need to see you anymore. Done. Yes. Yes. I like the, I like the amount of consistency that, uh, that, that, that's emerging as a thing. No matter what the situation is, the person you encounter, you have the patience to allow that relationship to emerge and to de- develop. Even if it takes two weeks of follow-up, six weeks of follow-up, phone call, you allow that to be a part of how you pursue that conversation or that interaction. There's no skin off my back to call somebody and check, check in on them. Yeah. See, hey, how, how are you doing? You know, I'll tell you what, check this out. 
the, the Klansman in the picture that I showed you, he's the imperial wizard of that particular group. He had, his name was Frank Ancona. Look him up, A-N-C-O-N-A. Um, but you got to put in Frank Ancona KKK because there's another Frank Ancona who's a uh, car dealer. You don't want to, you know, he has nothing to do with the clan. So anyway, um, he was the imperial wizard. If um, of the largest clan group in the country at the time, if he had lived for another year, uh, I, I would I, he would have been out of the clan because he and I were becoming very close. Mm. Um, but he was murdered. I knew him very well. I knew the murderer very well. Um, I went to this man's funeral and I participated in his funeral, not because I respect the Klan. I respected him for giving me the time and the interviews that he gave me. And, you know, he was friendly to me. I did not agree with everything he stood for, but I could see him changing, you know? And like I said, he was on his way out, but he was murdered. And I participated in the funeral. I played hymns on the, on the piano during the, uh, the church service and all that kind of thing. The, the whole clan was there and they saw that. And do you know what? They invited me to one of their rallies in, uh, in uh, South Dakota and one of their um, uh, meetings in, uh, in Kentucky. Hmm. And I went and I spoke at their rally. I spoke at their meeting. And do you know several people, not immediately, because you know, they don't do anything in front of each other, right? Yeah. But the seed was planted. You know, after things were over, a few days later, a couple weeks later, three of them quit. Mm. And I have their robes. I got them in the mail. In the mail. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Amazing. Wow, that is extraordinary. Now, I was in, um, I was in uh, Custer, South Dakota for this rally. And I knew that, that uh, what do you call it? Um, Mount Rushmore uh, is nearby. I wasn't sure how far it was. And so, you know, when the rally was over, you know, I'd, I'd done my speaking and stuff, and we're all sitting around, I, uh, you know, it's, it's nighttime. And I said, um, isn't Mount Rushmore around here somewhere? You know, so a lot of people don't know this, but Mount Rushmore was carved by a Klansman. Yeah. I know that. I did That's not right. know that. Yeah. Yep. Um, check it out. I, I knew that a lot. Of course, the Klan knows it, but it's not in the history books. You know, you got to research it. And, uh, Anyway, so I said, um, isn't Mount Rushmore around here somewhere? He goes, yeah, yeah, so in 20 minutes up the road. I said, well, I'd like to go up there. You know, can you all take me up there tomorrow? They said, yeah. So they came by my hotel and picked me up, drove me to Mount Rushmore, right? We hung out at Mount Rushmore, you know, and had our pictures taken in front of, you know, the, the, the mountain there and all that kind of stuff. So not only do I engage with them, in the work that I do, but I engage with them on a social level so they can see me as any normal human, human being who wants to see a part of history. That's all. And that, that resonates with them. And then they wonder, how can I hate that guy? I never really knew him. Right, and you, you allowed time for reflection. You allowed, exactly. You gave them something to reflect on as well. Precisely. So a question from the audience, heartfelt one. I'm a conservative-leaning millennial, and I'm concerned about the future, as I've noticed that there are left-of-center people around my age who are intolerant of opposing opinions, and this causes me to stay quiet out of fear of being excluded or rejected um, based on my views. 
What are some things you would recommend to take the first step in order to at least respectfully share my ideas with people around my age? Okay, first, you don't have to give up your, you know, your views. There are people you know, left of center, right of center, this, that, and the other, okay? Whether you're conservative or liberal, you know, there's people in the middle, people leaning this way or in that way. Get over the fear, all right? Be who you are. People will respect you for who you are because if you present yourself as anybody else, it's going to eventually come out. You know, I'm, I sing the blues, and, and there's an old blues song where the line says, if the washing don't get you, the rinsing sure will. So you know, it, it all eventually comes out. Be who you are, my friend. Take your stance, but be open. Be willing to listen to somebody else, but share your views with them. Let them know why you are left of, 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 uh, of center, of, of being a conservative or right of center or wherever it is you, know, you may be. There's nothing wrong with that, all right? But also respect where they are and have these conversations walk across the cafeteria. You're not going to lose anything by doing that, okay? If anything, you will gain some friends. If you don't gain the friend, you will gain respect, all right? You're not gonna have, have anything less than you already had by doing that. And I, by the way, I love the laundromat blues, you know, Little Milton and Albert King. Oh my goodness, Little <laughs> Milton, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Love little Milton's. You know, he's passed away now. You know, yeah. I, I got to I got to play you know some gigs with him. All right, all right. So, so say a word about fear and how you see that as being a part of the challenge that we face. Okay, so let me give you a, a quick story. The the guy that you saw in the CNN video. All right. Uh, he didn't know I was black. My my secretary called him and set up the interview, and I told her, "Do not tell him that I'm black." This is he was my first interview, and because uh, I was already told by, in fact, by the guy I met at the Silver Dollar Lounge, "Don't fool with him; he will kill you." And this guy was genuinely concerned for my safety, so because he liked me, you know, he's coming to my gigs and stuff, and I went to him and said, "Hey, you know, I want to interview plant people all over the country. I want to start here in Maryland." Hook me up with the leader. He didn't want to do it. He was he was fearful for his safety and my safety if he took a black man to this clan leader. And I said, well, you know, give me his phone number and his address and stuff. He did it very reluctantly and begged me not to tell the guy where I got his information. I said, okay. So I had my secretary call the guy and say, listen, just tell him that you work for somebody who's writing a book on the clan. Would he consent to sitting down and, and giving me an interview? Do not tell Mr. Kelly that I'm black. If he asks, don't lie to him, but don't, don't give him reason to ask. She said, okay. So the reason why I did that was not to deceive him or anything like that. I'm not deceptive that way. Um, I figured that I wanted him to reject me in person once he saw me, all right? Um, and you know, give him the opportunity to see me and then let him decide if he wants to do the interview or leave me or whatever. Uh, also, the fact that if he knew I was black in advance, and, and he accepted the invitation, in the interim, he would have time to prepare perhaps different answers for a black interviewer than he would give to a white interviewer asking the same questions. So I wanted it to be spontaneous, candid. She understood, she called him, he agreed to do the interview, didn't ask what color I was. So when he showed up at the motel, he came with an armed bodyguard. 
And um, the guy had, a, had a, a gun and a holster on his hip. And um, the bodyguard walked in the room and saw me and just froze. Because you know, he's looking for a white guy. And, and the Grand Dragon, Mr. Kelly, came in behind him and didn't realize the guy had stopped and bumped into his back and knocked the guy forward. And now they're all like looking around the room like, uh-uh, something's not right here. You know, is this an ambush or, you know, do we get the wrong room number or what's going on here? So I stood up and I displayed my hands like, hey, there's nothing in my hands. So they came in. I walked forward. I shook, I shook their hands. They shook hands. And Mr. Kelly had a seat. And the bodyguard stood at attention to his right. And um, I sat across a little lamp table from him, took the lamp off. I had a bag beside me, a black canvas bag. In my bag, I had a Bible and I had uh, blank cassettes, and I put a cassette recorder in the table. And why do I have the Bible? Because the Klan claims to be a Christian organization, and they claim that the, that the Bible preaches racial separation. So I want to be able to reach down and get my Bible and say, here, Mr. Kelly, please, show me where it says blacks and whites must be separate. So I'm all prepared. So he and I are talking, and every time he made some biblical proclamation that I did not believe, I'd reach down to get my Bible to for him to show me where, or if the if the tape recorder ran out of tape, I'd reach down to get a fresh cassette. Every time I reached down like this, the bodyguard would reach up like this to his hip and put his hand on the butt of the gun. Now he's doing his job. That's his job to protect his boss. I'm the enemy. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know what's in my bag. So he's doing his job. I got that. Uh, you know. So I was cool with that. After about 45 minutes of that, he relaxed. And, and every time I went in the bag, he didn't move. He was cool. He realized there was no threat. So Mr. Kelly and I are just talking. And all of a sudden, a little over an hour into this thing, there was a very fast, very short noise that came out of nowhere. It went like a, and we all jumped. Like, what was that? You know? And I knew that Mr. Kelly made the noise. How did I know that? Because I didn't make it. So he had to have made it. <laughs> you know, process of elimination, right? And so I jumped up out of my chair because I was going to come across that table because I, I feared for my life. I feared for my life because in my head, I'm thinking, what did I do to cause him to go off and make some weird noise? And I'm thinking about that other Klansman telling me, Daryl, don't fool with Roger Kelly. He'll kill you. So I didn't want to die that day. My secretary is sitting to my left on top of the dresser because there were no more chairs in the room. And I'm getting ready to come across that table, grab him, grab the uh, bodyguard, slam them down to the ground and take away the bodyguard's gun. I'm not armed. My secretary is not armed. So I've gone in, into survival mode. And you know, there are very few things you can do. Uh, one is to do a preemptive strike, get them before they get you. So that's what I was on my way to do. When I came up, I'm looking right into his face, into his eyes. And I didn't say a word, but I knew he could read my eyes. My eyes were saying to him, what did you just do? His eyes had fixated on my eyes and his eyes were asking me the same question. What did you just do? And the bodyguard had his hand on his gun again, looking at both of us like, what did either one of y'all just do? Well, Mary, my secretary, she's sitting on the dresser. She realized what had happened. And she began explaining it. Before they even arrived, I sent her down the hallway with some money to get soda pop out of the machine, out of the vending machine, put it in the ice bucket, fill it with ice, get it cold, because I want to be able to offer my guest a cold drink, you know, if he came in the room. And um, so it was sitting over there on the dresser and we'd long ago forgotten about it because we're so engaged. The ice was melting 
and the cans were falling down the ice. That was it. Somebody almost got shot over an ice cube, over a melting ice cube. But we, we all began laughing when she explained it to us. And that proved that we all are human beings. We felt fear, we felt relief. But, but here's the lesson learned. All because some foreign, foreign being that bucket of ice cans of soda, of which we were ignorant, had entered our little comfort zone via the noise that it made, we became fearful of each other. So ignorance breeds fear. We fear those things of which we're ignorant, that noise. If we don't address that fear, that fear will escalate into hatred because we hate the things that frighten us. If you don't address that hatred, that will escalate into destruction. We want to destroy the things that we hate. Why? Because they scare us. But guess what? At the end of the day, they may have been harmless and we were simply ignorant. Mm. So I say this, let's forget about the destruction. Forget it. What's destroyed is not coming back. All right. Uh, that's just a symptom of the nucleus. Let's forget about the hatred. That's another symptom of the nucleus, the root cause. Let's forget about the fear, another byproduct of the root cause. The root cause is ignorance. If we cure the ignorance, then there's nothing to fear. With nothing to fear, there's nothing to hate. With nothing to hate, there's nothing to get mad about and destroy. The good thing is this, there is a cure for ignorance. That cure is called education and exposure. And that is where we need to devote our time, our energy, our money and our efforts mm. into curing that ignorance. And then we won't have to worry about all of those other byproducts, fear, hate, and destruction. And we can do it. We gotta, we, gotta, we gotta redirect our way of thinking. It's sort of like how we work now. We always thought about getting up and leaving the house and going to a job and sitting behind a desk. Now we're reprogramming that we can telecommute and work from home. So we gotta rechange our way of thinking as how we address these issues. And we can do it because I've been doing it. So we've got about five more minutes. Nasheed, I've got a, a, a favorite question I wanna ask. I'll defer to you to ask the next one. Okay, well, the words you share have a measure of poetry, poetry to it. And there's a kind of a rhythm in the relationships that you allow to occur. Uh, you plant a seed, you nurture it with water and, and conversation and understanding and respect, and you watch it grow. The gentleman you said you went to the, the funeral of, you mentioned something that I wanted to make sure came to light. You saw the growth in him. You saw the evolution in his thought. And when did you in your travels and, uh, and learning from people, when did you realize you, uh, Mr. Davis, had the ability to see the good in people? You know, as opposed to just the result, to see that evolution in people, that's a skill. I began seeing it the more I would converse with these people, because I, I never dreamed I would, I would see them more than once. Mm. It was never my intent to make friends. It was never my intent to, to convert. You know, all I want to know was, how can you hate me when you don't know me? So all I want to know that I don't need to see you again. But when you're talking to somebody, oh, you like that? Well, I, I like that too. Yeah, I saw that movie. Yeah, right. I thought that part was funny, you know? Yeah. And then you're beginning a relationship. 
that you never dreamed about because I came in thinking a tiger does not change his stripes. Why would a Klansman change his robe and hood? But guess what? I was wrong. I learned something. So I'm capable of learning things too. Ah, now I like that. You saw the learning and evolution in yourself. That's the point of integrity. And so when you saw your growth, you were able to identify growth in others. Um, right. Take away, Liz. And you know what I would say to anybody out there? Listen, I am just a rock and roll piano player. I am not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. You know, I probably should be. I probably make more money than I do playing rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're exceptional. You're exceptional. But if I can do this as a rock and roll piano player, any one of you all can do this, seriously. Perfect segue to this question from Kami, who directs the USC Center for the Political Future. If you had a magic wand, how would you get more people to reconcile around race and politics? How would you create, and I love this vision, this picture in our heads, how would you create a force of 33 million Daryl Davises, which is just 10% of the US population? Well, you know what? You, Liz, and you, Nasheed, are creating them right now by the people, like the gentleman who, who wrote in his chat about how, to, how do you overcome the fear about speaking to people with whom you disagree. You know, you are, you are helping to create those kinds of people because we're giving them the tools and the tips. They are interested in, in doing this work. Mm -hmm. So it's important. And, and I really appreciate, you know, you're having me on this show because a lot of people don't want to talk about this kind of stuff. It's the elephant in the room that we don't talk about. But you all, you know, have taken that that bold step to have these conversations and share share them with your public. So thank you all very much for helping to create that. Your film opens with a RFK quote. I don't know if you can call that up. I have a longer version of it, but it's sort of what you've said reminds me of that. Um, it says, few will have the greatness to bend history itself, but each each of us work to change a small portion of events. And then basically that that becomes who our generation is and what we do. Yes, indeed. Nice. Yes, indeed. Thank you, gentlemen, for spending this time with us tonight. I really have had, had tears in my eyes most of the time. Um, I am so touched and honored, um, Mr. Mr. Davis. Just um, wow! Thank thank you for being who you who you are and who you inspire us to become. Now listen, we've sat on this thing here for a couple of hours. You need to call me Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Daryl, Daryl. Any any closing thoughts from you? Uh, I would just say, uh, Daryl, you set the bar. Uh, you set the bar. You've you found a wonderful way to blend. Uh, scholarship, because you're a wonderful researcher, uh, humanity and understanding people, but also what's in yourself. You're very personable. And I believe you are allowing people to see that they can be that change that they want in the world. And I also want to make sure that the, the general public who are listening and participating, uh, take a look at Village Square's list of podcasts and programs, not just this one, but the ones in the past. We look at truth, we look at power, and we look at civic engagement, and we have a lot on the horizon. So thank you. You're, I'm going to, as an end cap to your comment, Nasheed, we got a, um, a comment in from the audience. 
that you just used the term human decency, isn't this fundamentally about greater human understanding, which is the purpose of the humanities? I thought you'd yes. like that comment. <laughs> that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Gentlemen, thank you so, so, so much for spending this time with us. On behalf of Florida Humanities, the Village Square, and our streaming partners, we'd like to thank all of you out in the audience for being with us too. Good night, everyone. Good night. Corey Nathan, back with you. What amazing stories and a truly inspiring testament to the fact that, as we always say, reaching out with an open heart and an open mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you really can change everything. What strikes me about Daryl's experiences is that by making a human connection, for one, we have to risk something. We risk literally putting ourselves in harm's way. But Daryl's openness to meeting another human being as well as on the part of the guys who were part of the KKK at all levels, they were putting themselves at risk too, but making that human connection. And not just that Daryl's demeanor and his wisdom for how to engage with someone was profound. It was, it was earth shattering, or I should say it was hate shattering, hate shattering. We got to do a little bit more of that <laughs> shattering hate. Because if you meet with someone in person and give them the benefit of treating them with a baseline of respect and listen, really seek to listen to them, as opposed to just trying to shatter their perceptions and beliefs, as wrong as you think they are, like the kid who saw the magic act where the lady got sawed in half, uh, listening first goes a long way to making a person feel seen and understood, as opposed to picking a fight right out of the gate. But meeting someone, seeing them as a human being, listening to them, those are all signs of respect. And all that goes a long way to cutting through the calluses of hate. As Daryl said a couple of times, a tiger can't change its stripes, but people aren't born with hatred. It's learned. And what's learned can be unlearned. So a tiger can't change its stripes, but a Klansman can turn in his hood and robes. And if that's possible, and it is, Daryl Davis is a lifetime experience to prove it, anything is possible. So with that, it's time to close out today. Please consider joining our members and supporting this program. You can become a member for just $7 a month or $76 a year, and your business can join for $250. So go to villagesquare.us slash donate to join today. That's villagesquare.us slash donate. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with everything happening at the Village Square. Go to villagesquare.us. Scroll to the bottom for the sign-up box. Funding for this program was provided through a grant from Florida Humanities with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Check out Florida Humanities online at floridahumanities.org. That's floridahumanities.org. We appreciate you listening to Hate Undone with special guest Daryl Davis. And until next time, as I said earlier, we challenge you to reach out with an open heart and open mind to someone who doesn't look or think like you. It really does change everything. 
We'll talk to you soon. And thanks so much for listening to Village Squarecast.